Hey guys, it's Nathan. This is episode 61 of The Nathan Seward Show. The Nathan Seward Show, inspiring you to live an extraordinary life. Welcome. I hope you're having a great start to the week. I'm in New York here in uh, David's house in Chelsea, to be specific. And just arrived here on Friday and had a great weekend in the sunshine. It's a beautiful summer here in New York, which is fun. The Greek sailing trip that we're putting together is filling up really fast. So over half the spots are gone already. So if you're interested in that, reach out to me and, and let me know. Uh, or you can go to nathanseward.com slash adventure to find out more about that. But the boat is booked. The weather is looking good. There's a lot of amazing entrepreneurs that are already booked on the trip. So I'm super excited about that. It's August 4th to 11th. And yeah, all the information's on my website, nathanseward.com slash adventure. So check that out and hope to see you guys there. Let me introduce David Elport to you. Hello, David. Hello, Nathan. <laughs> nice to see you. David's a great friend of mine, and we've known each other for almost a year, I would say. Yeah. Just about a year. Yeah, so we met at one of Rich Lipton's intensives in LA, and as we were just chatting about, we were both coaches, travelers, and homosexuals. So <laughs> It's true. It is true. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, we immediately bonded, and we've been, uh, been close friends ever since. David, you, you live in New York. I do. It's a beautiful place. Yes. In Chelsea. Yeah. Yeah, it's beautiful. Thank you for inviting me here. And you've been coaching for how long? I have been a coach for just coming up on three years. Yeah, right. And the new venture is called Intentional Traveler. Yes. So I coach people around transformation, deep transformation, and work with people a lot around intention. But my work history prior to this was almost entirely in the travel business. Right. So this is putting those two things together. Yeah, cool. Yeah. Well, this is kind of my excuse to ask you questions that I don't know the answers to. <laughs> yeah, okay. And take me back a little bit, because I know quite a bit of your history since we've been you know, known each other for a wee while. But where does it sort of start for you? You know, if, we, if you take us back a little bit, what do we need to know about your story and how you got to being the intentional yeah. travel coach? Well, I guess it all starts in the Midwest, which is where I grew up. And, you know, if you, well, both of my parents were big travelers. And if you grow up in the Midwest, then you kind of have to travel to get anywhere you would want to be. So my, uh, my dad was a big camper. And as a kid, all of our family trips were to the big national parks. And I just completely fell in love with travel. And I think as a young kid, if I could have like picked anything to be, I would have been a steward or a flight attendant. Steward was what they called it back then, you know, and then I thought maybe I'd become a travel agent. But, I, you know, all I really knew is that I loved to travel and I wanted to see the world. I left the Midwest and went to college on the East Coast. And what was that move like? Uh, that was amazing. I, you know, I knew that I wanted to spend, you know, likely spend my life on the East Coast or the West Coast. And I'd come to New York as a 16 year old uh, with my high school drama club and you know, I can remember my cab ride from LaGuardia into the city like it was yesterday. I mean, I thought I was, you know, I'd landed in Oz. You know, I'd never seen so many tall buildings and so much energy. I remember driving down Fifth Avenue on our way to our hotel and like seeing all the international airlines. Like that was what was kind of blowing me away. And I was completely, totally hooked on New York City. Uh, and knew I wanted to go to college somewhere near New York. And that was really the beginning of my, what has been a lifetime of travel 
So that's kind of, I mean, the Midwest was where it all started. And uh, I go back there all of the time. But my main thing was getting out of there and seeing the world. And what's it like? Because, I mean, New York compared to the Midwest is pretty different. There's a lot of people, say, from New Zealand watching that might not understand the contrast. But yeah. What is that contrast? Oh, I'm glad to hear that there are a lot of people from New Zealand watching. Yeah, so Jason's there as well. Hi, Jason. Hi, Peter. Uh, Rachel Nolan. Hello. That's awesome. You know, I have a cousin who got married in St. Louis yeah. to a guy who was from New Zealand. Uh, this was last fall, and I would say that maybe 50 Kiwis flew in for the wedding <laughs> to St. Louis, and and they were impressed, yeah. as were we. Um, <laughs> a lot of alcohol consumed. Yes, more than most, because <laughs> the Jews are not really known for alcohol consumption. Yeah, so we, we would have made up for that. Yes. Uh, I mean, the Midwest is is you know, it really is in many ways the heart of America, which means it's full of a lot of the great, very open hearted people and things we think of as sort of very, very uh, all American. It's also a little bit backwards in a lot of ways, a lot of social issues, not the big cities where I, I grew up in St. Louis, but, uh, you know, it's a place many people truly do fly over going from coast to coast, but it's uh I always say that there's no more interesting trip to take than to drive across the United States. You you will see so much. And, uh, you know, I feel great about coming from there, but maybe even greater that I don't live there anymore. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's interesting because we know about the coastal places a lot, you know. Yeah. Um, we know about L.A., San Francisco, New York. Yeah. But probably, you know, our ignorance from outside the U.S. is those sort of places. Yeah. But, you know, huge population lives in the in between. Yeah. I mean, there are so many amazing cities between the coasts. And, uh, you know, St. Louis, where I grew up, was once a great city. It's it's diminished a little bit in its influence. But between, you know, Chicago and New Orleans and Atlanta and yeah. Denver, there's so much out there. I've been to 46 of the U.S. Oh. states, but... The four that I haven't been to have been the four I haven't been to for about 25 years. So I think I need to plan a trip. Yeah, could be a good, good trip to plan. Tell us about your, you know, again, coming from the Midwest and then coming to the big city, your coming out journey. Mm. What did that look like? I mean, it must have been a lot easier once you got to the East Coast. Yeah. Uh, you know, I grew up in the, uh, I was I was born in the 60s and kind of had my formative years in the 70s. And, you know, it was not an easy time to be young and gay anywhere. You know, there were very few things in society to tell some kid that they were going to be okay or that it was okay. So I was completely in the closet when I was uh, living in St. Louis. I went to a very liberal college on the East Coast where I, I don't know what I was expecting, but I wasn't really ready to come out at that point. My freshman college roommate was perfectly matched for me. He was a New Yorker. He was adorable and he was gay. And I was scared shitless of like going there and, yeah. and really didn't. But I you know, decided against a lot of fears to come out when I was in my early 20s. And that was super, super hard. The fact that I was in New York really didn't make it easier because those things are really about dealing with, you know, your foundational relationships, your family, your your childhood friends. I found the longer I'd known somebody, the harder it was yeah. to come out to people. I think coming out is 
even the phrase coming out is a bit misleading because you don't come out once. Yes. You come out over and over and over again. That is so true. Mm. Yeah. Really, really true. And your parents, how did they take it? Uh, they, my parents were amazing. I mean, I think they were, they were surprised, <laughs> I guess, but uh, they, they really handled it well. So let's talk about New York because, you know, when we talk about diversity and people coming out and being mm. themselves, I mean, this place is ridiculous. Yeah. You know, we were talking, I'm staying in Chinatown at the moment and, you know, it's amazing. It's just 10 blocks that's, it could be taken straight out of China. You know, all the shops are the same, uh, the people are the same, the, 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 the smells are the same, you know, and uh, then you walk a block over and you're in Little Italy and then, you know, another block and you're somewhere completely different. What's New York meant to you? Uh, New York, New York has meant everything to me. I mean, I honestly feel like it's, it's been the great love affair of my life. I remember there was a Sex in the City episode right after uh, the first episode after 9-11 or one of the first ones. And, and uh, Carrie had a date with a guy who just wasn't a, a sailor who was passing through and he was, he just didn't get New York. And, you know, she couldn't really, if she, if she had to make a choice between New York and the hot guy, she chose New York. <laughs> um, it's kind of like that for me, but, you know, You've let a few hot sailors go over the years. Uh, I've tried not to, but I've had to, yes. (laughs) Fleet Week. New York is, I mean, it really is like no place else on earth. I think it is, and it is the diversity of the people that makes it so magic. Because that diversity leads to so much creativity, so much Mm -hmm. amazement. And, you know, I think if a person loves a city, there's, there's, you know, there's no way you couldn't love New York. I've lived here for 34 years and it never, never gets tired. Uh, you know, it can be tiring. It's definitely more tiring as a tourist than it is as a, as a person mm-hmm. living here. But it is, it's the diversity that makes me love New York so much. I had a really powerful moment on the 4th of July the other day. I went with some friends over to Williamsburg to watch the fireworks, which I hadn't done in years. And you know, when you live in the city, you often catch a glimpse of the Statue of Liberty. And, you know, these days when uh, we have an administration that is so stoking anger about immigration to its advantage and, you know, in a country that is has all of its strength and all of what makes it so amazing because of immigrants. I mean, the Declaration of Independence was signed by a bunch of immigrants. You know, it, you you feel very strange when you see this symbol. And I was watching the fireworks with the city behind it, thinking about how happy I was to live in this city that really is the embodiment of, you know, of the American dream and the American dream that is built as a land of immigrants, immigrants that came by choice and immigrants that were forced here. And that is, I think, the pride I feel about New York. And I love it when people like you love New York. I mean, it's that... That makes it so exciting. Well, it's kind of, it's, it's, in a way, it's a weird experiment, isn't it? Like, it's mm. a big, weird experiment. If we put a whole load of different cultures on an island and, uh, you know, kind of allow everyone just to be who they want to be, yeah. would, would that work? And it has its flaws, right? But it basically works. Yeah. You know, it functions. I think of, I mean, I think of New York as like the, the it, of course, it wasn't the first city, you know, in some great cities of our great ancient cities are mm. critical. But in terms of a modern city, I think it is, it remains the city that every other great city, 
you know, is aspiring to be like. Yeah. Yeah, totally. It's, it's funny. I know we both also share Burning Man and it's funny, you know, Burning Man is this seven day long city in the middle of absolutely nowhere desert in Nevada. But, you know, once you go there, it's sort of, you have that lens to look at everything in life through. And I will sometimes have nights in the summer where I'm riding my bike in New York and, and I feel Burning Man because Burning Man is also this place where all these people go and they bring their creative expression mm. and make a city. And it's so magical. And that's, that's what I love about cities. It's what I love about what happens when people come together and bring themselves and create. Yeah. Um, Peter says, how is New York City in terms of community and opportunities for social gatherings? Is it mostly based around common interest or social class? Mm, that's a great question. A really good question. Thanks, Peter. Uh, you know, it is probably the most social city in the world. I don't, yeah. I, don't, I don't think anybody would choose to live here if they did not love to be around people. And I think if you do not love diversity, then it really wouldn't be place for you. Uh, so it is a city that is loaded with opportunities to socialize. That said, it also is, you know, it is a city that is, is a city of multiple communities. And because it's a large city, you may not, you know, there's little Indonesia and little, yeah. you know, little everything. And those are spread out over a large area. It is you know, if you live, if you can afford to live on the island of Manhattan, your world may be heavily, your community might look more like you than the city overall. But I would say more than most places in the world, you know, you engage with every kind of class, every kind of race, every kind of religion and every day. And I think uh, the transport is a big part of that, isn't it? Mm. Like that, that's the great leveler. Yeah. Because if you want to drive a car around New York, you're going to be late for everything. Yeah. Right. But if you want to take the subway, it's the quickest, most efficient way. So on the subway, you can see everything. Yes. One of my favorite things to do, and I ride the subway every day, is to just sometimes stop and notice who is sitting in the car with you in a New York City subway. Yeah. And it is every shape and size, or sometimes I'll just say, I'm going to check out everybody's shoes on the subway. <laughs> and you're just like blown away. Yeah. Like you just, you get what a diverse place it is. Yeah. It's interesting. If I compare it to New Zealand as well, you know, we're sort of known for being quite, I don't know, I don't want to class this wrong, but you know, reserved, I guess you would say kind of reserved, mm. humble, quiet-ish, you know, until we've had a drink. Yeah. But the idea of a New Zealander getting on a subway car and like playing the saxophone would just, <laughs> you know, that would feel like death to most New Zealanders. Yeah. Whereas, you know, people are constantly challenging how to express themselves in different ways yeah. in the city and just how to be seen yeah. and heard. Yeah. It's an interesting thing. You know, New York historically kind of had a reputation, New Yorkers as being rude or abrupt, kind of in your face. It's really interesting. Yeah. Actually, when you live in a city, and this is not just true of New York, but when you live in a city where you're constantly on the street or in the subway or in some form of public arena, you have to be able to turn off what is going on around you just to get from A to B or to not be distracted. But I think mm -hmm. most people find if you stop somebody in New York on the street and ask them something, 
they will stop and engage you in the most open way. I, I like I think of New Yorkers as being the most approachable people. And I, I love it when I love when people stop me and I get to to uh, share a little bit with them. Yeah, I never understood that. Like, I guess that's I don't know if it's a throwback to a, a previous time or something, mm. but that was when I first came here. That was the reputation I was, was thinking. Yeah. Was I oh, everyone, you got to kind of stay out of people's way or else everyone's going to yell at you. And strangers just engage with you all the yeah. time here. Like everybody yeah. will talk to you. If you're waiting in the line or somewhere, people will talk to you. Yeah. It's completely the opposite of what I expected. Yeah. Yeah. And you've got to see, like, when did you first move to Manhattan? I mean, this just sounds like an advertisement for Manhattan now. <laughs> when did you first move here? Yeah. Well, as a, I moved here at a very challenging time to be a young gay person. I moved here in 1984, which mm. was during the, oh, yes, is that the year of your birth? It was, yeah. So it was a big year for yes, both of so us. Yeah, so we both were born. We, I was reborn and you were born. <laughs> it was a scary time because the AIDS crisis was... Mm was beginning and it was a terrifying time in the crisis and a very weird time to come out because at that point, you know, there was such a connection between being gay and and being at risk of or having AIDS. But it was also an incredible time in New York because the city was, (laughs) the city was still at its sort of um, rough and tattered Mm. stage. It had not really begun its full uh, rebirth But it meant there was so much, especially in terms of nightlife, there was so much going on, so much great art, such a mashup of of everything happening in the city. So it was a really, really exciting time. And, you know, and for the gay community, the AIDS crisis was also a very galvanizing and powerful time, Mm -hmm. as difficult as it was. um, Did you lose some friends? You know, I was was lucky. I, I did lose. I lost maybe three close friends, but later in the AIDS crisis, during that period of time, I did not know a lot of people who were, you know, most people who were coming down with AIDS early were a little bit older than I was then, but it defined life and gay life in the city in certain ways. But it's really interesting. I mean, the AIDS, the AIDS crisis in New York and globally also galvanized the community in ways that really, I think, were surprising. And one of the ways was that there was a flourishing of amazing gay businesses. And that actually kind of cracked open the door for what was really the beginning of my entrepreneurial venture. Mm. So what were you doing before that? Because I'm excited to dive into that as well. What were you doing and what led you into that? Yeah. Well, I moved to New York and my first job was working in a big ad agency. Uh, I was a psychology major. And in many ways, that probably explains the coaching piece now. Sure. But uh, I, I worked at a big ad agency and worked on Diet Coke and kind of hated it. But I learned a lot during those first two or three years. And I had a decision to make around what I would do that would be more fulfilling. And my two passions were entertainment and travel. And I began looking for interesting jobs in both of those spaces. And the first job that came up that seemed really appealing was working for American Express. And I was took a job managing the company's relationship with the airline industry, mm. which was just a dream for me because I was thrown full bore into the travel world. And I worked at American Express for five years. Again, corporate life wasn't really my thing, but it's such an amazing way to start a career in terms of just learning how to communicate and negotiate and plan. And uh, so I had a 
eight-year corporate career, mostly in the mm-hmm. travel world. Right. And so then you see an opportunity. Yeah. The opportunity, like uh, probably most entrepreneurial things, came out of a, a, an area of passion. I you know, had come out in the mid-80s and began to travel. And it was really clear to me that there, there wasn't a lot of good travel information out there for, for gay and lesbian people. This was when it was just gay and lesbian. We, hadn't, we weren't sensitive enough to the other letters yet. But I, I had run a sort of a newsletter product at American Express. And back in the days before the web, creating a newsletter was a very easy way to start a new business because the cost of publishing this, you know, a, a newsletter was low. Mm. And if you had good content, you could charge a lot for it. So I had an idea of creating a travel publication for the gay and lesbian market. Just and like a side project, kind of a side hustle. It was not, no, it was my dream of how to get out of corporate life is really what it was, how to not have to wear a suit every day. So I found a guy who I worked with at Amex, another gay guy who we we hit it off as friends and we decided to leave our jobs and we started a travel publication called Out and About. It was a perfect name for what we were doing. And we began to publish a 16 page, two color print newsletter and what year is this now? Like this is 1992. 92. We quit our jobs, and three months later, we mailed our first issue to about 120 people. Wow. We charged $50 for a subscription, and you know there really was nothing else. There were there were a few other publications, but we had a a very irreverent voice, and we we took no advertising, so we could kind of say or do whatever we would like, and it was a very exciting time in the gay travel world. RSVP Cruises existed and Atlantis, which is still going strong. One of the great gay travel businesses was still out there. There was a gay tour operator for every kind of travel you could want, adventure and culture. And you've kind of described it to me as well as, you know, gay people, it wasn't necessarily safe either in certain places. So you wanted to sort of show people where is it safe to travel what hotels can you go to? What restaurants are going to be open to gay people? They yes. Kind of so all, it's really important in the community. All that stuff, yes. It was really about how to travel and be able to find other gay people and do the things you would want to do. Also, how the industry itself was treating gay people. At that time, there was not a single major airline, hotel company, or car rental company that offered protections to its uh, LGBT employees. During the time we did that business, we we would uh, give awards every year and call out companies that had poor policies. Mm-hmm. And there was a big change during the 90s, often spearheaded by the sensitivity to uh, HIV. That was a real galvanizing moment for the industry. I remember American Airlines was the first company to create a, a gay salesperson to reach out to the community. It was a, These were huge milestones yeah. at that time. Um, the gay circuit parties didn't exist before, and they kind of exploded and were all over the world. It was really, really an incredible, incredible time, and so much fun to be writing about it. Oh, it would have been. Yeah. yeah. What were some of the highlights of that, that business, running that business? Uh, well, uh, you know, there were so many. I mean, discovering the world through that lens was was really amazing, and seeing seeing tour companies, I would say, taking groups to every corner of the world, 
chartering entire ships and filling them with one, two, three, four thousand gay people, you know, throwing parties that that thousands of people would travel to and seeing tourism ministers, you know, recognizing the power of the gay dollar and the positivity of the gay community was just just totally amazing to behold. Mm. So all, all of that was a thrill, uh, seeing the, you know, on a personal level, I mean, it was an opportunity for me to see the world and it, it all was just really, really mind blowing. Yeah. We published, we published two guidebooks that were published by Disney's publishing arm. And that was really amazing to have them behind a gay travel book and put us out on a book tour. But, you know, I, I have to say as an entrepreneur, you know, the heady thing was, being able to run a business that was so aligned with who I was and what I was doing. Yeah, that's the dream, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it really was. It was really a dream. Amazing. Well, I mean, when you think about today, you know, because of people like you, you know, the, being a gay man is so much easier, mm. you know, when it comes to travel or just acceptance or, you know, a lot of it. I, I took an LGBT walking tour of New York last time mm. I was here in December. Right. Yeah, and we just went around the West Village and saw all all the places like where the riots had taken place and different things. And you know, this is really where where a lot of the change happened. This mm. is where it started. This was yeah. the you know, this was you were right at the coal face of change, yeah. and uh, you were involved in it yeah. very heavily. Yeah, it was an amazing journey. And what so what was the time that you decided that you'd had enough? Because it sounds like mm. the dream, the dream. Yeah, business. well, it, it was the dream. It's funny, you know, you set out you have your your vision of what your business is going to be and for me you know it was you know doing something i really cared about and uh, was passionate about being able to dress in whatever clothes i wanted mm-hmm. making money was not at the top of the list and and you know we did okay but we never really we were not rolling in the dough but during the time that we did out and about that was also the birth of the internet and when the internet began really bubbling up. Um, there were two companies that were fighting for dominance in the LGBT space, Planet Out and Gay.com. This is now 2000, 1999, right. And both of those companies were able to raise many millions of dollars, more than any gay business had ever raised, to you know, scale their, comp- their businesses. They have more customers than any other gay business ever had and go public. That was the dream during the dot-com boom number one. And as part of that, those two companies began trying to find gay businesses that would give them the audience and the content and the community that they needed. So we were in a very sweet spot at that point. And so we were both lucky and and smart, a uh, combination of both. <laughs> and we decided to sell the business at that time. And you know, we're fortunate to sell it for probably way more than it was worth. Uh, but we did have a, a super happy ending to what was a really, yeah. really happy journey. And that was what brought me to the end of that phase. That's it. Uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, interesting. And so eventually find yourself in coaching and, and to where we are now, where, again, you're looking to combine all your loves yeah. into this new business, yeah. the intentional traveler. So I travel a lot. Full time. That's all I do is travel. I love <laughs> so, that. Yeah, I, I know travel you know pretty well, and I know the power of the transformative power of travel, and that's why I do it. Like it's living the nomadic life is not easy by any stretch. There's a lot of downsides, but that's kind of why I do it. 
I don't do it because I wanted an easy life. I do it because I know that all of a sudden living in Chinatown, you know, for three weeks, something's going to happen. Like I'm going to be challenged in a certain way or it's it's just a new experience. And mm. that's why I love to travel. So I was so excited when you told me about this business that you wanted to actually more formally harness mm. the transformative power of travel. Is that a fair way to say? Oh, yeah. And I, I love that phrase, you know, the transformative power of travel. I think anyone who travels knows that, uh, you know, the great dream of a big trip or a small trip is that you're going to come back somehow transformed. Mm. Um, and We all uh, travel for a reason. Yes, we do. And, you know, broadly, you know, we travel to relax and restore or to deepen our relationship with the people we're traveling with or to grow ourselves, to learn or mm. experiencing something new or to, to challenge ourselves. But if you're, you know, if we think about it, I mean, travel is so intentional by definition. We're leaving our lives to go on some kind of journey, big or small. And underneath that decision is an intention that something is going to happen. And uh, I became a coach and coach people day in and day out around the power of being intentional in what we do. And so what does that mean? Let me stop you there. So being intentional, what does that mean to you? Being intentional means entering a situation with clarity of what you are hoping to achieve in that circumstance. Mm. So it's different from a goal. I, I would say it's different. You know, a goal is a form of intention, but I think intention is, it's it's more a it's a direction. It's a, it is a goal. Uh, I think goal, the only reason I would say that there's, there's a nuance is a goal tends to be often goals are weighed down with other elements of, you know, of, of performance or achievement. And I think an intention is, it is a goal, but it's more a, um, a mindset of something that you're hoping to manifest. Mm, yeah. I like that. Something you're hoping to manifest. Yeah. Cause I think it's, what I like about intentional, the way I think of intentionality is you're not so attached to an outcome hmm. as well. Absolutely. You're kind of setting an intention and this is the direction I want to go. This is what I intend to have happen. This is what I intend to do. And I'm open to hmm. what comes I, out of it. I love that. Yes. And maybe that's why I was, you know, struggling. That's, that's a great thing to differentiate an intention from a goal because hmm. goals are, you, know, you don't have to achieve the outcome, but the outcome is kind of. Yeah. By nature, thing. that tends to be what they are. Yeah. yeah. An intention is a compass, perhaps. Exactly. Okay, so, you know, when you think about travel, because travel is so accessible now. Mm. You know, we have all these low-cost airlines, so more people are traveling than ever before. Airbnb, Uber, you know, Apple Pay, all these things that allow us to just roam the world mm. a lot easier, all give us the opportunity to travel more. So tell me about bringing more intentionality to, mm. to travel and what are the advantages of that? Yeah, well... You know, intention really is a superpower. When we enter, and I, I'll say to people, from the meetings you go to, to picking up the phone and calling your mother, if you can check in with your do you intention. Do I do. <laughs> I do. My mother is with us, and I don't ever call her without doing a, a very quick check on what do I want to have at the end of this conversation that I don't have now. That's the question that, for me, is the power question about intention. What do I want to have at the end of this meeting, conversation, day, trip that I don't have now? And I think if you can answer that and really build that muscle as a habit, you're going to be much more powerful in your engagements. And 
you know, as a traveler, I, it just is such an obvious place mm-hmm. to be intentional. And I had a boyfriend and my, my, uh, I had a prior boyfriend who was uh, a very spiritual guy. And before every trip we took, when we were sitting down in the plane at that sort of peak of excitement about a trip, he would say, let's share our intentions. And I loved it. It just let us align around what we were looking forward to, be aware of where our intentions may differ. And it reminded us of why we were going on the trip. Mm. And as you said, you know, everybody has access to travel now, but we also all have access to our phones and emails and distractions. And it is very easy to move through life mindlessly Mm. as opposed to mindfully. And intentions are a way of unlocking that mindfulness. So, you know, to me, the great gift that I want to share with everyone, and the business will be one of my ways of doing it, is that if you can stay connected to what your intentions are for your trip and share them in a line with the people who you're traveling with, you are so much more likely to have the trip that you set out to do. Yeah. It's that simple. And so you, you work with people... Generally, you have a call with them prior to the trip, whether it's a couple, whether it's an individual, a family, and you'll help them draw out. And anybody that's experienced any type of coaching knows Mm -hmm. that just the power of being able to draw stuff out of you. Can you give us an example of someone that you've done this work with and what the result has been? Sure. Yeah. So I have a coaching program. It's a 45-minute to 60-minute session where I take single travelers, couples, families, friends through a guided conversation that is really all about their intentions. Mm. I'll share a little bit about it, but you know, I talk to people about what their intention is, how they want to be on the trip. Uh, some of the basic things that we need to think about before we travel, the room we want for spontaneity, uh, how we want to connect with technology. That's all- a great one, right? Like, Oh yeah. yeah. I mean, if we are mindless about technology on our trip, I think There was a study that showed that on an average week of travel, the average traveler spends 10 hours connected to social media. If if that's enhancing your trip, great. But if it's getting in the way of your trip, you want to keep an eye out for that. Well, I think, uh, you know, when I think of that, I think of, you know, like I said, travel can be challenging. And it can also be, even if you're at an all-inclusive resort for a week, it's different to what you're used to. Yes. Especially if you're, you know, you're a hard worker or you run your own business and then all of a sudden you're sitting on the beach or by the pool. Yeah. That can be quite shocking yes. to the body, right? And the easiest thing to turn to now is just jump on your phone and, and distract yourself from that. Yes. So it's a really good thing to discuss before you go. Totally. I mean, our phones enable so much to happen on our trips. They have maps, they have our cameras, but, you know, it's all on there. So that is often a a powerful question, particularly when I'm talking to intergenerational travelers, parents and kids, grandparents and kids, they have very different desires around technology. Mm -hmm. You know, one of the often uh, I'll talk to people who are real planners and they they become aware that, you know, they're really setting out on a trip because they want to experience the destination. One of the questions I ask people is, after they've declared what they want on their trip, what their intention is, how they hope to feel at the end, I'll ask how they might get in the way. And they'll answer that they'll be so caught up in planning or stressed out about planning that they'll miss what's in front of them. And that can be, that 
awareness of their intention and how they might get in their way can be a game changer. I'll often, along with the, after the coaching session, I send somebody a portfolio that captures their answers and provides them with tips of how to realize what they're looking for or work their way around something that might get in the way. And I'll encourage people a really easy tip for over planners, people that are stuck in their guidebook, is when they feel themselves stuck in the guidebook or feeling anxious about a plan to stop and just check in with all of their senses and then decide, do they want to go back into their book or do they want to be where they are? And people tell me that it makes a really big difference. Yeah, just taking that moment. Yeah. Reset. Yeah, I love that because uh, I'm big on adventure. You know, adventure is a big value of mine. And adventure for me means going where you don't know what's going to happen. Yes. And so for the the, uh, compulsive planner, they don't get to experience adventure. That's one thing that they yeah. get. And I'm sure a lot of them want to experience that. Yeah. Actually, you know, it's funny. One of the, when I tell people about intentional traveler, one of the questions I often get is, well, but I really like to be spontaneous when I travel or adventurous yeah. when I travel. Which is an intention. Right. Exactly. You know, if you're completely planned to the T, you may not have time for spontaneity. Mm-hmm. But if one of your commitments is to be open to what is, presented in front of you, then that knowing that that is your intention is actually a very powerful thing for you. And often uh, people have a different view of how spontaneous they want to be. And it's, it's good to know that. Mm. Yeah. You know, I, we put a lot of energy into planning our trips, but your intentions really come into play when you're on the trip, because when you're on the trip, that is when you're going to be presented with choices. Do I do A or B? Do I run with the opportunity that's, that, that I never would have expected happened, or do I stay on the plan that I wanted? It's raining. You know, do I, am I going to react in a way that is going to take my trip downward, or am, gonna, am I going to react in a different way? And that's where your intentions really come in handy. Yeah, I love it. I love the whole concept. And it, for me, I saw, you know, you, you've mentioned when you work with a couple, and then when you start taking them through like an intentionality session, mm. uh, they start to realize, oh, one person really wants to relax. The other person wants to be adventuring every yeah. day. Yeah. And they, you know, I think you've said to me as well, like everybody's had a vacation that didn't work or they didn't get what they wanted. Yeah. So I think it, it's so good to have that, yeah. you know, before you leave for the trip. Yeah. You can see what each other's trying to do. Totally. I had a conversation with with, uh, another coach. Unfortunately, we did not have an intentional travel conversation before his trip, but he and his wife and their child uh, took a trip out to the Pacific Northwest. They went to Seattle and they were really excited to see Seattle. They like cities, but what they really needed was a break. And they went on the trip with their two-year-old kid and stayed with friends. And this guy was telling me that he came back from the trip completely exhausted and in need of a vacation. And it was a real, as we were talking through what his intentions were, you know, he realized that the trip they planned was misaligned with his intentions. And, uh, you know, it's so, so powerful to think about this, both before you choose the trip that you're taking, and especially after you've chosen it and are moving into a planning stage. Yeah. And the, the other piece I love is you, you help them come up with a mantra. Yes, yes. One of my favorite parts of the, of the intentional travel process is ending the conversation with somebody declaring a mantra. And, you know, 
a mantra is just a thing we can a phrase. And I encourage people to come up with very short phrases that we can come back to and remember why it is they're doing their trip. And uh, it's just, it's like the anchor of the intention. Some examples, one, one person's mantra was feel fear and follow it. Another, it. another person's mantra was only connect. Another one few people have had is get uncomfortable. You know, and those, those kinds of things really help remind you in, in key moments of what you're on your trip to have happen. Yeah, because you can check in, you know, at, at any time throughout the trip and go, well, am I uncomfortable? Yeah. Have I been as uncomfortable as I want to? Yeah. Yeah, very cool. So you, you take people through this. So you give people a coaching session, you give them a mantra, they have a pack that they can take with them. Uh, what else do they get when they work with you? So if somebody wants to do one of the uh, hour-long coaching sessions, they get the guided conversation, which we do either in person or by video. Uh, they receive a portfolio with their output so they can check in, as well as a set of activities, all very fun conversation starters to use at different points in the trip and, uh, and along with their declared mantra. And then we do a brief follow-up conversation when they return uh, to both check in with how it went and help anchor the uh, experience for them to carry going forward. Yeah, perfect. And for the people listening today, can you give us a little bit of a deal? A little bit, uh, of, a, little bit of a cheap deal for yes, the people? Yes, I can give everybody a free deal, which would be the best. Uh, so we have a website, which is uh, intentionaltraveler.com. That's Traveler with one L. And uh, on that, you can download uh, nine questions to ask that will get you in touch with your intentions for the trip and help guide you on the way and that is free and i encourage anybody traveling to do that and to do it every time um, if somebody wants to go deeper uh, we have this guided intentional travel coaching session uh, it's 250 dollars. but for your listeners anybody traveling the rest of the summer so anytime in july and august can reach out you can send me an email at david at intentional traveler Com. Just let me know you heard about this on the Nathan Seward Show, and we'll set you up for a, a guided conversation that will absolutely take your trip to the next level. Fantastic. It's such a great deal, guys. Do that. Uh, email David, david at intentionaltraveler.com, and you can do this whole process before your next trip for $100, US which is crazy, and I'm guessing the price is not going to be <laughs> that cheap for much longer. No, but it, we're happy to make it available. Now. Awesome. Thank you. Yeah. So guys, reach out. I, I'm such a firm believer in what David's doing because I love travel and I love intentionality. And I've seen David at work and he's an absolute magician at this. So drop him an email and make sure you do this before you start planning your next trip. David, that's it. Done just about an hour. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. Nick. Yeah. The last question we ask every guest is, what is your dark side? Do you have a dark side? And how have you learned to embrace it? Since I can only choose one, um, <laughs> you know, I'm a, I'm a people person and I love, uh, I, I really thrive on the energy of other people. But the dark side of that is that I can be oversensitive to uh, what other, what I think other people might be thinking or saying or, and, uh, and that can lead to insecurity. So that's something I'm aware of and I'm always working to try to overcome. Yeah, is there a way that you've learned to em embrace that or to you know, be kinder to yourself around that? I guess I just remind myself that it is part of the gift that I have of being being a very sensitive person and 
you know, I just try to remember that, that uh, if I can focus on what matters to me, I'll be bringing the best of me to the world and, and hopefully people will receive it well. Yeah, that's beautifully said, thank you. David, thank you for inviting me into your home. Thanks for talking about this. You know, I love all things gay, New York and travel, so this has been a great conversation. Awesome. Um, there you have it, folks. That's my conversation with the wonderful David Elport. Check out his website, intentionaltraveler.com, travel with an L. And uh, you can email him for that uh, great deal, david at intentionaltraveler.com. Thank you, guys. Have a great week, and I'll be back next week for episode 62 of The Nathan Seward Show. That was The Nathan Seward Show, inspiring you to live an extraordinary life.